From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Surgery Set. I'm Jonathan Kohler, an assistant professor in pediatric surgery here in Madison, home of the Badgers. This is a podcast all about surgery and the individuals who are at the cutting edge of it, and we're glad you're here. Hi, everyone. It's Jonathan Kohler. Welcome to The Surgery Set. Before we get started, can I ask you a favor? If you enjoy the podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever you've downloaded this podcast from. It really helps. Thanks. Now on with the show. On this episode, I speak with Dr. Jerry Doherty. He's the Surgeon-in-Chief at Brigham Health and the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and he's the Chair of the Department of Surgery at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. His clinical focus is around efforts to advance the care of patients with endocrine tumors, including a recent article in the New England Journal of Medicine about the overtreatment of patients with certain thyroid cancers that's currently the talk of Twitter. Dr. Doherty came to Madison to deliver a grand rounds talk about the history of surgery and, more importantly, where our profession is going in very pragmatic ways like how do we organize our professional lives, what could the surgeon's office of the future look like, and how do we sustain our careers and maintain a level of satisfaction. We'll talk about all of that on today's podcast. As always, a link to the full grand rounds can be found at the Surgery Set webpage, surgery.wisc.edu slash podcast. Dr. Doherty, thank you so much for joining us today on the Surgery Set. It's great to be here. I appreciate the invitation. You gave a great grand rounds today. The, the most succinct title of a grand rounds I think we've ever seen here, it's called Surgery. And, and that was the talk you gave. Title. Yes, right. I mean, it, and, I, and that was the talk you gave. It was the perspective on surgery, something that I think that we, we haven't really, we're so prone to get down into the weeds on, you know, this or that new advance, but the sort of global perspective on where surgery came from and, and more importantly, where it's going. Yeah, and, and I think there is an aspect to which we need to understand where we've been to, to understand where we can go. The, the whole point of the talk was to set the context for how things have changed over the last 30 years. Um, what's happened in medicine and surgery. Also, what's happened with who we are as surgeons. Um, the demographics and the preferences of our workforce have changed over that period of time as well. And then how we might improve things for our workforce going forward to make people more satisfied in their professional lives. One of the things that I, this term that I keep seeing around the internet now a lot is the Overton window, um, which is this notion that our perception of our reality is sort of bounded by like a, a range of expected events that can move. And you talk a lot about how medicine has changed, how surgery has changed, and how the patients that we take care of have changed. So you talk about, and, and I certainly have heard from senior surgeons that I've talked to about you know, what medicine was like in the 1980s when the hospitals were still full, but they were full of patients who were coming in for a six-day inguinal hernia repair. And now, you know, the hospitals are as full or more full, but all those sort of simple patients have gone home. <laughs> um, yeah. The nature of surgery, you know, we're, we're pushing to be more productive and we're, we're working on sicker patients. And, and our whole idea of, like, what, what it means to be a hospitalized patient has changed dramatically in a, in a relatively short period of time. Yeah, I think th this is actually great news. This is advancing medicine. So it's better for our patients. We do a better job for our patients now than we were capable of in 1993 when I finished residency. We we know more about the best things to do for them. We have more technological advances that can allow us to do more things in a less impactful way. So I think all of that is good. Where I think we've had a disconnect is 
that our structures of how we arrange our work lives have stayed the same in spite of the fact that the pace of surgical productivity has increased so much. So if you look back 100 years to you know, the original uh, house staff who you know, lived in the hospital, and th- there wasn't that much going on. And so I, I, I think you know, when, when I say I took every other night call as a surgery resident, it was a lot easier to take every other night call, I believe, than it might be to take every third or fourth night call now. Because the patients were less ill, there was, there was less going on, there was more downtime. So I think we need to adjust our historical approach to how we organize our lives, professional lives, and how we, how we define success in our professional lives. We need to change that to fit the modern productivity models. Because I think where we are now is unsustainable with our levels of responsibility and so on. Yeah, I mean, it really feels to me, and this was something that surprised me when I became an attending you know, not long ago, was how productivity-oriented our profession was. And you, you make the case that, that that's a good and a bad, right? We're very productivity-oriented, and people are all about you know, increasing your RVUs year on year because we are a very powerful financial force for hospitals. And so we have these productivity demands, but we also have a a supply issue that we can exert to sort of wrangle things back towards something that's a little bit better for surgeons' well-being. Yes, and I think this is absolutely the case. You know, we are, what, what we're doing now, I believe, is unsustainable. I don't think we can expect our workforce to continue to you know, work 60 to 80 hours a week as attendings. Now, we're not talking about the trainees at this point, but as attendings, I don't think we can expect people to work 60 or 80 hours a week to be 4% more productive every year for the rest of their careers, to be on call all the time, to have seven-day responsibilities for everything. I think we need to deliberately build in some breaks, build in some recharge time for people to enable them to meet their professional goals, meet our goals for them professionally, as well as making time for their personal goals, whatever those might be. So what's your vision of, of where medicine should be 30 years from now? Is it that we're all salaried on a Kaiser model and you know, we, we've adapted Facebook's workplace you know, and everybody gets free lunch? Or, or like, what, is it, what does it look like? Uh, that's a that's a complicated one. So I, I actually think a mostly salaried model is more likely to lead to professional satisfaction. Incentives are important, and, and we all like to have stretch goals and incentives, and we'd like to be rewarded for those, but whether those rewards are, are more compensation or more time or more opportunities. I think there's lots of ways to do that. But I think the predictability of a mostly based salary. The compensation experts would tell us when the variable compensation rises above 20% or so, um, people's behavior starts to deteriorate, Mm. um, that they start to act in ways that is not necessarily good for them or good for their workplace if they've got so much of their compensation at risk. But up to about 20%, 10 to 20% seems to be kind of the sweet spot. Incentives are good. And so if we can get people to a stable, predictable, fair base salary and then some variable compensation on top of that, I think that may help support both productivity for the department as well as as professional satisfaction for the individual. 
how that works is going to be very different in different places. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know that we all want to go to a, a totally to a Kaiser model. I think there are some negative things from what I understand about the Kaiser model. I've never worked at a Kaiser other than moonlighting in the emergency room as a resident. The idea of having a more employed workforce in our current situation is more likely to lead to professional satisfaction. How do we incentivize de-implementation? How do we incentivize not doing more operations, but being more thoughtful as surgeons, less technicians, and more more people who can say without affecting their own bottom line, I, I actually don't think you need an operation. Let's not do the most expensive thing. So there's two things that, that are helpful there. One is this largely guaranteed salary so that people aren't looking at you know each piece of work as an incremental part of their total compensation and group incentives. So when you have group incentives, so if you're a, a part of a division um, where all of the division revenues are, are pooled together and people have their base salary and then their incentives to divide up and so on. When you remove sort of the direct connection between individual activity and individual compensation and kind of filter it through the group, it improves behavior as well. So I think there are, there are positive things that way. From an administrative point of view, you know, how you size a department of surgery for an accountable care organization world is a, is a tricky thing. You know, once we become both the insurer and the providers, we are incented not to provide too much care. And so to the extent that we, you know, size our workforce to fit what needs to be done, I think that's going to be the key. That's a longer range project. You make the case, though, that it's it's not like we're about to have a glut of surgeons in the country, right? No. We, we're not going to have enough surgeons. Yeah. And so we've got twenty to 30,000 uh, FTE decrement in the next 10 years or so. So hopefully maybe that is another impetus, right? If, if we don't have enough surgeons, the push to do more operations may diminish. Yeah. So, and, and I don't, I actually don't think the issue of unnecessary surgery is a huge one, yeah. um, particularly in general surgery and its subspecialties. Um, the work that we do is not typically discretionary kinds of things. You know, there are some choices where, you know, you might choose operative versus non-operative therapy for certain hernias and so on that, you know, there may be some discretion there, but most of the work we do, there's not a lot of choice involved. So I think we're relatively protected from that. For me, it's always been one of the great satisfiers of of surgery, you know, like my favorite operation is the exploratory laparotomy for gunshot wound because there's like no ambiguity. Like, yes. You have a thing to do, and you're going to do it. Right. There is a certain moral clarity there. Yeah. You asked another interesting question, though, is what our workplace is going to look like. Is yeah. it going to look like Facebook in, in, in 10 years? So I've had this, um, uh, this sort of thought experiment going of what would the ideal surgical office suite be like? You know, if you were thinking about how to make an office environment that fit what we all do as surgeons, mm-hmm. most of us have an office, and most of us don't spend very much time in it. Yeah. Our work is actually done in other places. We're in the clinic or we're in the operating room or in the laboratory or we're in a, you know, a, a conference or something. So we have a lot of, of square footage of office space that is mostly unoccupied in our medical institutions. But there are spaces that we could use and that I think would add to our professional satisfaction. So if I were designing a hospital and a surgical office space now, I think what I would do is arrange two somewhat luxurious locker rooms mm-hmm. with you know large lockers that are personal space where you can 
hang your coat, lock up your briefcase, you know, arrange your personal items and things so that you have your all of your things there that you need, your locker room where you go and check in in the morning. Sort of like the professional sports team locker room. Yeah, professional, yeah, right, yeah. Right. A, a, a nice space, and yeah. then, frankly, that's not very expensive. And then a large common lounge workspace, you know, some individual segregated touchdown spaces that people can go in to work, conference spaces and so on, that I think in total would add up to less square footage than our current you know, you know, obligated office space we have for surgeons. But in terms of utility, would be much more highly used mm-hmm. um, for, as places for people to meet, wait, interact, you know, touch down when they are going to call patients back uh, or work on their computer and so on. We need spaces to do those things. But I, I would make it maybe closer to the Facebook model. Right, where you sort of come in and pick an open desk every day. Mm-hmm. And have the opportunity to interact and have that collegiality. I mean, people certainly have shown that, like, physicians' lounges, which are on their way out for other reasons, like, Maybe actually are, reasons. are potentially good as, as meeting spaces and an opportunity to sort of have those conversations and not close your door for that, yeah. you know, 10 minutes a day that you manage to get to your office. The, the best alternative that I've seen to a physician's lounge um, is actually a separate clinician area in the cafeteria. Hmm. So it doesn't have to be any different than the other areas. It you know, can be separated with some table tents that just say clinicians only. But then it's, it's nursing staff, healthcare extender staff, and physician staff, a place for them to be together where you don't have to worry that when you talk about a patient that the family is sitting next to you. Right. Um, and, uh, and does you know, provide some of that collegial interaction uh, opportunity. I thought your talk was marvelous in the way that it covered the scope of ways we can think about the future of surgery and how to make it better from things like reimbursement models to, you know, architectural improvements we can make in hospitals. I think that sort of holistic view clearly is the only way we're going to get back to a place where doctors feel satisfied with the work that they're doing. You know, I think we do difficult, impactful things with a lot of specialized training and personal investment and a great deal of talent. And I think we need to create an environment where people can be proud of the work that they're able to do, satisfied that they're meeting the expectations of their job, and that they're afforded the the personal space and accomplishment to to fit all that into the rest of their lives. Well, I feel newly optimistic that that's an achievable goal um, after hearing your, your talk today. And thank you again so much for coming in to join us. Thank you for the opportunity. Next time on The Surgery Set, my guest is Dr. Carol Bradford. She's an internationally renowned head and neck cancer researcher and academic surgeon and the executive vice dean for academic affairs at the University of Michigan Medical School. We talk about new innovations in treatment for melanoma, including work she's done on sentinel lymph node biopsies that's incredibly exciting. I hope you'll join us. And just a reminder, we have a short survey up on the website, surgery.wisc.edu slash podcast. Our next episode will be our 50th, and I want to keep making the podcast better for you. If you complete the survey, you will be entered to win an extremely nice Wisconsin Badgers red stainless steel water bottle. Thanks. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was recorded by Chris Hansen and edited by Elizabeth DiNovella. Our theme song is On Wisconsin, arranged and produced by Jamie Schmidt. I encourage you to visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. 
You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. In addition, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. And of course, you can follow us on social media. You can like our Facebook page and also find us on Twitter at Whisk Surgery, and I'm at J.E. Kohler, K-O-H-L-E-R. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing, rate and review us on your podcast app, and don't hesitate to let us know of any topics you'd like us to cover. Thanks, and we hope you check back soon. On Wisconsin.